According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me one more time in John chapter 12. We are in the final few verses, verses 44 through 50. John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. Before I forget, when, when class is over um, and before you leave this room, uh, take a peek at the wood samples that are on the shelf over there and you'll see some of the stains and oils and things of that nature that uh, we'll do this again tonight too, that uh, the deacons were hoping to gather a feminine perspective on uh, attractiveness and uh, so because I think the men really don't care as, uh, <laughs> you know, any of the stains and any of the oils and the glosses and things of that nature. So uh, this is for the shelving behind the recording booth. And it is also for the library that uh, is ready to be stained. Also, uh, we're going to have some announcements coming up, too, on a Saturday coming up. I think the first couple of Saturdays in February, we're going to have staining parties uh, and just get eight or ten people in here to to help uh, do the, the staining on the on the shelving. So anyway, Kevin will be uh, in charge of that when we get that far. All right, John chapter 12, 44 through 50. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. All right, that's what we're going to cover today. Lord willing, rapture pending, we'll see how far we get. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and humble under the authority of teaching. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you today one more time for the privilege we have to assemble together and this could be our final time, Father, as we wait day by day and moment by moment to uh, hear the, the trumpet sound, to be caught, caught up together with the clouds. Father, uh, we just want to redeem the time. Uh, each opportunity, each prayer meeting, each Bible class, each, each opportunity we have to assemble together is a grace provision, and we thank you for it. Father, we uh, do pray for concentration today and a setting aside of distractions, a hedging about, Father, for our protection um, bless this study today, Father, as we uh, review some some wonderful verses related to our evangelism opportunities. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. This is going to be point three in the overall outline. And we'll just zip on through. I forgot what slide I'm headed for. Uh, point one, the Pharisees' dismay at Jesus' fruitful ministry finds immediate application when some Greeks request to see Jesus. So we talked about the Greeks that had come in verses 20 through 26. And then the voice out of heaven that came as uh, Jesus said his soul had become troubled and the father 
uh, says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus actually issues the imperative in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. And so Jesus responds to the soul trouble by going to the Father in prayer. And the Father answers in a way that will allow um, impact upon these Greeks that have come. The Father's answer uh, is an encouraging affirmation that Jesus could use to edify the confused crowd. He says, uh, this is not for my sake, but for your sake. Uh, You remember that from verse 30. This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. I don't know if you ever want to stop and consider that perhaps um, the things you're asking for in your prayer life, you might want to reevaluate and say, you know what, maybe the answer to this isn't even for me. Maybe the answer for this is for my children, my grandchildren, my neighbors, my friends, my enemies. Uh, Someone is going to see how this answer is provided and it will bear fruit for the glory of Jesus Christ. And uh, it it may be that the answer to this prayer isn't even for your sake. Something to uh, consider. The eternal victory over sin and death and the universal drawing unto life. That's an important study there in verses 30 through 32 where he draws all men to himself. The drawing ministry of the Son, you have to connect it to the drawing ministry of the Father. And um, the application there. The crowd knew about the eternal Christ, but they were deficient in their Son of Man understanding. And that's uh, verses 34 through 43, what we have spent the recent weeks dealing with and wrapped that up last week. Uh, Who is this Son of Man? We heard that the Christ is to uh, remain forever. That's what the law says. The law can't be broken. The Christ is going to stay forever. And now you say the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? And so they wanted answers. And uh, he gives them their answers. All right. And he wraps it up here with this need for faith. This need for faith. And let's see. He says in verse 35, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. And faith in Christ is what he's urging them here to. And uh, you understand that. Now this is going to, really set the table for today because notice these things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. He went away and hid himself from them. Okay. I don't know. Do you ever feel like that? You're giving the gospel and you're telling them you'll believe in Christ and then you run away and hide real quick. Hope not. But here's what Jesus does. Okay. And in part, I think it's because of this hostility that's building and building and building. Uh, But he's not going to stay hidden very long because uh, we see With today's message, in verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. And so I think when you relate the the hiding verse to the crying out verse, you understand that he didn't stay hidden for long. And he he actually only removed himself from that immediate uh, audience and then found this place here in the temple where he can can proclaim this uh, faith message uh, to a different audience, to an actually a different audience. So... Uh, give this to you under point three then. Yeah, the last thing we saw last week was how the blindness of the crowd was pathetic and prophetic and uh, some of the uh, Isaiah passages that prophesied their blindness. Okay, And uh, I don't know if you ever, if you ever 
do you debate Calvinists very much or, or deal with some folks that this is this is a promised prophesied blindness specifically that's that's related to Israel, see, and yet um, the 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 view of total depravity that's often held by the Calvinists and others is that the whole human race is under that blindness, see, and if that's the case, if all humanity is under that blindness that they, that they describe, then what's going on here directed towards Israel? What kind of prophecy is that? You know, it's like a prophet standing up and saying, tomorrow you're going to breathe oxygen. Okay. You're doing that all the time anyway, right? <laughs> right? So uh, anyway, just more things to, uh, to put into your study basket when it relates to sovereignty and uh, human depravity. All right, point three now. The last issue we'll deal with, with five subpoints related to this passage. Jesus didn't hide long or go far as he had additional gospel preaching to do on this day. Jesus did not hide long, John 12:36 shows him hiding, or go far. By the time we get to episode 5, we see he's still in the temple precincts. Um, Matthew 21:23, as he had additional gospel preaching to do on this day. And so uh, I think it's, again, it's an indicator of how obedient the Lord was. He would speak when commanded to. He'd say silent when commanded to. He only speaks that which the Father has for him to speak. Uh, He hides when he's instructed to hide. He's delivered from those that are trying to murder him until the day comes for him to be delivered over and uh, so forth. And so here's an episode where he's hiding in verse 36 and then he's crying out in verse 44 in, uh, in a very short period of time and probably a limited uh, distance away. If the uh, first message was given at the gate, I suspect that these Greeks were waiting for him. Uh, they were among those who were going up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip. Philip came to Andrew, and then Philip and Andrew brought him to Christ. I suspect this was right there at the eastern gate from Jerusalem, right as they'd come in from from uh, Bethsaida for the day, or from uh, Bethany for the day. In any event. Uh, by the time we get to episode five, he's in the temple, and so he's not too far away, and uh, and that's the point that's being made here. Now, verse, back up to verse 44, and let's start getting the details. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Now, here we've got a, a construct of language you need to understand. It's not unique to Greek. We do the same thing in English. Uh, we've got to understand what's being said here, because it's an idiom. It's an expression. And when it says... Um, you can even put the word only in there. That might help. Does not only believe in me. Is not simply believing in me alone. But also, on the basis of, of how this is put together, is truly, in fact, believing God the Father. So he who believes in me does not believe only in me, or in me only, but in him also, in him who sent me. Okay? This, is, uh, this is how we put this together. So, otherwise, you end up with some nonsensical conundrums. He who believes in me does not believe in me. Okay? Every male in this room is not a male. You know, it's a self-contradictory statement. But, and we understand that the, the converse but is, is in a intensification, but also. And, so we, and that's, that's just a normal feature of language. We do the same thing ourselves. Faith in Christ is de facto faith in God the Father. Understand this. When you get saved, you have placed your trust in Christ, but you believed the promise the Father made through Christ. You understand the difference? 
It's the same thing. They're both united. You cannot separate them. Faith in Christ is de facto faith in God the Father. This is not our only passage that addresses this. I want to take the time to walk through this. Because salvation truly is a pedagogical thing. The Father, the Son, was the agent. He was the tool. He was the mediator. But it was the Father's purpose. In John 3.16, it's not the Son who's giving Himself. It's the Father. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. All right, we are, we are saved. In fact, uh, God the Father is called our Savior. God our Savior through Christ Jesus our Lord. So we want to understand how this works. Faith in Christ is de facto. A little Latin for you here today. In fact, I got kind of fond of that. It's going to come up again one or two more times today. But in fact, all right, in reality, uh, it is faith in God the Father. Not only do we see it here, but it was previously mentioned in John 5:24, and and almost, as I read through this a moment ago, in verses 44 through 50, did did many of those verses seem familiar? I hope so, because almost every single one of them has already been said in either the Gospel of John or one of the Synoptic Gospels. It's like the Lord goes away and He hides, and then He appears in the temple, and He just starts giving them a compendium of every previous gospel message He's ever given. He's giving them, uh, you know, a recap of every previous gospel call. And so, yes, this, uh, this message here about believing in the Father was previously taught. It was taught back in John 5. And um, this is where he highlights the fact that uh, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. That's verse 19. Uh, You remember they were uh, accusing Him of working on the Sabbath and He said, hey, my Father's working until now. I myself am working. And uh, so they want to kill Him because He's making Himself equal to be God. And so he says, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing for whatever the father does. These things the son also does in like manner for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And this is hard to understand because it's expressed here in human terms. But the interaction between the father and the son, what the father demonstrates is his will, what the son actually accomplishes. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. And uh, judgment here has been given to the Son. We're going to see that again in chapter in chapter 12. Then we get down to verse uh, 23. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So it's connected. What the Father does, the Son does. What the Father teaches, the Son learns and then he teaches uh, who honors the son honors the father they're, they're inseparable truly truly i say to you he who hears my word and believes him who sent me him who sent me and of course this is god the father we understand that believing him who sent me we place our faith in christ but that's also faith in the father because it's a it's a belief it's an acceptance of the promise that the father made has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. And so there, it's previously been given. Uh, Peter understood this, and he writes about it in First Peter chapter one, verses twenty and twenty-one. First Peter one, verses twenty and twenty-one. 
Pastor Cliff is teaching First Peter in the moment. I haven't had time to listen to very much of the audio files. But First Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, where it references the glories of our Savior here. Um, if, and you do, in verse 17, if, and you do, address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with a precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Notice now, who through him are believers in God. In the context, that's going to be the Father. It's through the Son that we're believers in, in the Father. So who raised him from the dead, raised the Son from the dead, and gave him, the Son, glory, so that your faith and hope are in God the Father. The same sphere that Christ's faith and hope are in. And so we see it there. And ultimately what this comes down to is John 10.30. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. If you place your faith in Christ, you've placed your faith in the Father. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. If you've heard Christ, you've heard the Father. Because He doesn't speak on His own initiative. He speaks only that which the Father has given Him to speak. So faith in Christ is de facto faith in God the Father. That's why both are spoken of as holding us in their hands. Christ holds us in His hand. The Father holds us in His hand. Faith in Christ is faith in the Father and you're held in both hands. To me, that is, that's just the way I think, is that uh, that's, that's the most powerful definition of eternal security I can envision in the, in the Bible. Because there are two omnipotent hands holding me secure. <laughs> I'm going to overcome that? My sinfulness? My wicked deeds? Or my, uh, I mean, I've got to be pretty, pretty crummy to be able to uh, lose my salvation if there's two hands of omnipotence holding me tight. That's awesome. That's powerful. I can overcome double omnipotence. What does that make me? Triple omnipotence? <laughs> I mean, how strong do you got to be to overcome double omnipotence? You know. At which point, if you have that triple omnipotence, then you don't need to be saved. Go save yourself. And so you understand what a powerful concept this is, and I love it. Absolutely love it. I and the Father are one. And uh, we can certainly appreciate that. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Follow up to what we just looked at in verse 44 is the truth here in verse 45. In fact, not only is seeing mentioned in verse 45, but hearing is mentioned in verse 49. Seeing Christ and hearing him is de facto seeing and hearing God the Father. Seeing Christ and hearing Christ is seeing and hearing God the Father. In fact, that's what you're doing. When you see Christ, you see the Father. Remember in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God. It's not on the screen, but it should be. Ephesians 1, uh, verse 15. or Colossians 1, 15, I think. Double check myself here. Yes. Colossians 1.15. It 
says in verse 13, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We'll have that coming up. I think. (coughs) Yep, under point C. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image. If you've seen Him, you've seen the one who can't be seen. You've seen the invisible God. You've seen God the Father. And He came, John 1.18, He came to reveal the Father. No one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed, exegeted, explained, unfolded Him. And so we can understand that for what it is as well. And I hope we understand this, because this is what it really comes down to. Uh, coming to Christ is coming to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. Why have we come to the Father? Uh, it's more than just simply not going to hell when we die. It is the, the reality that we are, we have come to the Father. That's the one we present ourselves to day by day, presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice, uh, studying to, uh, to present ourselves approved, to show ourselves approved. The presentations we have to make daily prepare us for the presentation we will ultimately make when we're done with the sojourn here on planet Earth. We come to the Father. We're here before the Father. God is spirit, must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshippers. God the Father is actively seeking church-age believer-priest worshippers. We need to understand that. He, He saved us unto good works, which the Father prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We need to be about our Father's business. So hopefully the uh, the full impact of this, uh, you know, paterology gets me excited. <laughs> and uh, probably because of the, the pastor who trained me, I'm guessing. But um, we need to understand that um, when we've seen, because we've seen Christ, we've seen the Father. Because we've heard Christ, we've heard the Father. And that's what we're, we're dealing with here is with Christ as the head of the church and the ongoing uh, nature of the church age. All right. Now, is this something brand new that we never heard before? Of course not. He's already taught this uh, in 118. It's going to come back again in chapter 14. It's going to come back again in chapter 15. And I think the more that he uh, started to uh, uh, stress God the Father as he was uh, approaching the cross, it's not surprising to me to see this in chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 17. Uh, he was fixated on the Father. and That's what sustained him all the way through the cross. I cited this just a moment ago, John 1.18. But I want to pick up a couple of verses on the way to verse 18. Because um, the forerunner was unique. He was not the light, but he came as a witness to testify about the light. So in John 1, 6, we find out there came a man sent from God whose name was John. And um, not unique in the sense that, of course, there were countless prophets before him, but unique in the sense that he was the greatest of them, the one who had the blessing to not only say Christ is coming, but to say Christ is here. And he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And this is what we're going to pick up on when we get back to chapter 12 and we see the the message that the Lord deals with as it relates to light. And so um, he was in the world. The world was made through him and the world did not know him. 
He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Rejected by his own people. The Jewish people rejected his his uh, messiahship. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Uh, Verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, The word which was eternal became something it had not been before and took upon the form of a human body, became flesh. Not human, but flesh. His humanity, of course, was long prior to this. Uh, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, but not his own personal glory. He was reflecting the Father's glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. He actually laid aside his own glory. He laid aside his own privilege. He never revealed his own glory. I think even the transfiguration was a glimpse of the Father's glory in different ways. All right. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So when you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. When you've heard Christ, you've heard the Father. This will come up again here shortly. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Join me there. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Remember, if you've believed in Christ, you believed in the Father. Here he's turned it around. You've believed in God. You believed the Father. Believe also in me. And uh, tells the disciples about the dwelling places in heaven and what he's going to go and prepare and so forth. When I uh, come again, I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And... um, In verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the Hados, the Aletheia, and the Zoe. No one comes to the Father but through me. I have two of those three daughters. (laughs) All right. I can't convince Sharon that Hados is a very feminine daughter's name, but maybe someday. Okay. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And he says, from now on, I believe he's speaking of the post-resurrection ministry. I believe he's speaking of the church age. We should be patriologically focused in the church age. So that we uh, know our father and have seen our father by seeing Christ. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And whatever hair he had left, Jesus just pulled it out. (laughs) Okay. Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? How is it that you've not yet comprehended this? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Well, we'll uh, we'll deal with this some more when we get that far. Look over to chapter 15. Next chapter over. Verses 23 and 24. Because it's not just seeing Christ and loving Christ. How about hating Christ? There's a corollary in it. He who hates me hates my father also. And this carries carries even an additional step because it carries to us too. But it goes from the father to the son to the apostles and ultimately to us, to all Christians in the church age. 
you know, that if they hate you, it's because they hated him first. Same thing here. They hate Christ. The reality is they hate the father. It's the it's the fundamental philosophy that underlies all satanic thinking. Satan views himself as the counterfeit father. Satan views himself as the better father. I will be like the most high God and I will be better because I won't be so unfair. That's Satan's insanity, right? So Satan views himself as a counterfeit father and he hates the father. Therefore, he hates the son. Why? Because the son is beloved of the father. So he who hates me hates my father also. So because of Satan's hatred for God, the father, it finds his primary attack in hatred for Jesus Christ. And because of his hatred for Jesus Christ, Satan makes his primary attack the body and bride of Christ. Hello, you and I. (laughs) All right. You think it's important to keep your armor on? Hope so. So he who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. In other words, these particular accountability and guilt for their sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. And boy, is their judgment going to be severe because of what they've seen. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to have it better in the uh, eternal judgment than these guys. And uh, the wrath will be something uh, pretty unique. But they've done this to fulfill the word that is written. They hated me without a cause. So seeing Christ and hearing Christ, loving Christ and hating Christ is de facto related back to God the Father. And I hope that we uh, can understand that. And I hope that we can become more, uh, because this is truly the more mature approach. This is truly the more um, accurate approach. Uh, that we are to be sons of our Father. We are to go to the Father in prayer. We're going to see the, the, the um, transition here. In one chapter he says, come to me and I'll ask the Father. In the next chapter he says, go straight to the Father. The Father himself loves you. And he tries to take them across that baby step from being Jesus-focused to being Father-focused. And I hope that um, we'll adapt that in our thinking too when we get to that point. Of course, faith in Christ is the only means by which rescue from darkness can occur. That's verse 46 of our text. Faith in Christ is the only means by which rescue from darkness can occur. I have come as light into the world... And I guess the as is okay. It's just really I, light, have come into the world. I, light, have come into the world. Now, God is light, and he claims to hear me, I, light. And I kind of like that as a translation better than I, as light. But either way, I have come as light into the world. I, light, have come into the world. So that, purpose clause... Everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. There was darkness until he entered. That's why I took the time to go back and read John 1 with you a minute ago. John 1, 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. So that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And that's it. That's the gospel message. That's the good news. Mankind's in darkness. This fallen world's in darkness. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The true light has come into the world. Provision has been made. And the more I talk with folks that are um, discouraged and despairing and hating God and blaming God and all this stuff because of sickness or, or 
bad things that happen or crimes that are committed or, or natural disasters or earthquakes or birth defects. I mean, all kinds of things. And the satanic lie that starts whispering, oh, how could a loving God let this happen? Don't you hate that? Because they don't know the first thing about a loving God other than to attack him and, bl- and blame him and deny that he has love or deny that he exists. That's what they're really saying. If God loved, then he wouldn't let this happen. God must not love. There must not be a God. See? Now, what they're doing is they're confusing the darkness and the love of God which provided for that darkness by sending the light into this world. Don't blame the love of God for the, 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 the sickness or the death of a loved one or the, whatever the, the, the bad thing is. God's love isn't the cause of that bad thing, but God's love has made provision. And uh, understand the darkness for what it is. <laughs> the, uh, to me, it ought to be simple, but uh, to the lost unbelievers that are blinded by the darkness, what else would you expect? So, it just really gets truly sad when it's believers who should know better that start to fall into, the, into that line of thinking. See, end up losing their faith. One of Billy Graham's longtime associates ended up walking away, losing his faith discouraged over what he couldn't reconcile with the bad things in this world. All right. Um, is this the first time he ever mentioned himself being light? No. <laughs> Not hardly. After the baptizer got done insisting he wasn't the light and introducing the light, then Jesus himself had some light messages, including John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. <coughs> I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You have to, uh, obviously, you have to follow Christ. You have to believe in Christ. We understand following is the metaphor for believing. Not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There you go. John twelve thirty five is our text. Oh, no, it's a little bit ahead of the text we have today. It's the text we had last week. He mentioned light in the first message before he went and hid himself, and now he's mentioning light again. For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. I believe there's a dispensational application on this. It's... uh, we have to evaluate whether Old Testament believers were sons of light, uh, whether Old Testament belie- or whether this was a unique uh, circumstance for the royal family of God in the church age. See, that's why we have our, our dominant um, passages related to light. Uh, Israel was salt. Uh, we have salt and light, and I'm trying to evaluate whether there is a dispensational distinction or whether it's just as appropriate to uh, for an Old Testament saint to be called a child of light or not. Anyway, I'm still debating on that. Exploring scriptures and trying to find more testimony. But clearly, there is an open door opportunity. There is a window, and now is the time. And wh- when the light departs, what's the, the intimation here is being that, that, that the limited time offer is, uh, is going. They're not going to have him with them as a visible testimony. They're so unique in this, at being the ones that have the, uh, the eyewitnesses of his, of his ministry. So while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. 
um, obviously in the church age, uh, the, the time frame in which to believe is your physical life on earth. That's why you have the light. That is why you're still on earth in the witness and testimony of, of uh, Christians around this world. And then we already looked at Colossians 1, didn't we? I got ahead of myself and gave you Colossians 1 earlier. But that's the definition of salvation. Rescued from the domain of darkness. Delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son. What a, what a, it's the only way to be rescued from that domain of darkness here is faith in Christ. Otherwise, you're just a son of this age. You're just a, a minion, a lackey, and, and you're uh, following after the desires of your father, the devil, and, and there you go. What a hopeless, helpless... Uh, situation point d first advent is not the occasion for judgment but rejection of christ's message will have an eschatological judgment based upon don't don't misread this it's not paterological will have an eschatological judgment based upon a protological i coined that term i made that up i don't think anyone else ever has a protological judgment. I'm hoping I can gain some royalties and some. Uh, if I get a trademark lawsuit going, then maybe we can cash this building out. What do you think? I'm teasing. I'm teasing. People here live can see me smiling. People listening on MP3 may think, "Oh my goodness." First advent is not the occasion for judgment. We'll look at these scriptures here, but because we're going to take this and we're going to go back to John 3. But um, think of this in a moment here. Think of this as far as what our role is in our witnessing. First Advent is not the occasion for judgment. So in your evangelism, is that an occasion to uh, be judgmental and condemning and critical and, 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 and tell this sinner all the... Sins they're doing? Is it an occasion for judgment? Say, oh, man, you rotten person. You're a, you're a thief. You're a fornicator. You're a liar. You're a, you're a miserable, no-good bushwhacker. All right? Um, movie quote. You can tell me after class if you got it. Um, <laughs> First Advent is not the occasion for judgment. I did not come to judge the world, but that the world could be saved. And, and you know, there, there is a judgment ultimately. And when the, the gospel is rejected, and that's the, that's the default path. In fact, you're already on that path before you reject it. But once you reject it, you're, you know, you're on that path. And, and ultimately, if you physically die in that rejection, then that's where you're headed. So, you know... Is the, is, the, is the deathbed the final place where maybe, okay, now it's all right to go ahead and start throwing the, the hellfire in there? You know, I'm just thinking that the, the pattern that we have here is that I did not come to judge the world. But that's the outcome when this message is rejected. And so for my, personally, I, uh, I don't think I've ever spoken to an unbeliever about their sins. Not, not in an attempt to evangelize. I don't think, um, uh, because that's not the point. I want, I want them to know about Christ, what Christ did. And, and they know their own sins. I don't have to highlight their own sins. So, let's look at it. Verses 47 and 48 here. 
If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, see, hearing is only part of the story. You've got to respond to the message, either by obedience or and, and you know the faith application or disobedience and, and disbelief. I do not judge him, for I did not come to the, judge the world, but to save the world. Yet, I do not judge him now. That's not my present ministry. That's not my present function. But he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. And this is the absolute standard of God's righteousness. And this is the provision that's made. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. And so the, uh, the testimony of the only provision for, for redemption from sin. And uh, that's the word that was spoken. And, and that's what's the, the one standard on the last day. You know, that the, the, the books of the records of the deeds that are done aren't the criteria for how they're going to go to hell or why they're going to go to the lake of fire. It's the fact that the names are not recorded in the book of life. The single book, the single rejection of Christ is the single criteria by which they uh, do not have eternal life. So the word which I spoke is that which will judge him at the last day. Yeah, it's eschatological. But more than eschatological, it's based upon a protological judgment, a judgment that's already taken place. And we relate this now back to John 3, verses 17 through 19. Verse 16, of course, we know so well. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Four, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the purpose for first advent. That's the purpose for first advent. And he's not here to judge. And he's not here to make an issue of your sins. In fact, he's going to take your sins and, and accept God's wrath for those sins on the cross. Thankfully, when he comes back at second advent for us, there will be no reference to our sins there either. See, when he comes for us at second advent without respect to our sins, because they've already been dealt with. When he comes, but on the last day then, after second advent, after the millennial reign, when all the unrighteous are resurrected to stand before him, uh, that's when uh, they're going to be thrown in the lake of fire, not for their sin, but because they rejected the, the offer of salvation. Verse 18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Now that's where we get the protological judgment. Eschatology is the last things. Eschatos is last, protos is first. Okay? So the eschatological judgment of last things on the last day, the final judgment is their great white throne thrown into the lake of fire, uh, is based upon a previous judgment. Truly, a first judgment has been judged already. And to understand the eschatological judgment, you need to understand the protological judgment, which was the divine decrees, the eternal life conference, the decision by God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit to put the Father's plan into effect, the decision to create a volitional realm of creation, the decision to allow that volitional realm of creation to fall into sin. The provision for that volitional realm of creation 
to be redeemed out of that sin by virtue of faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All of that was planned, agreed to, put in motion, decreed before the foundation of the world. And so he who believes in him is not judged because that was the plan. That was the provision. That was the Father's good pleasure. He who does not believe has been judged already. Before they were born, before the earth ever was, before anything but God existed, the plan was established that faith in Christ would be the mechanism by which God's grace could be received, freely given, freely received, judged already. That's the default, say. <laughs> you know, a little baby gets born. Saw brand new newborn baby pictures on Facebook yesterday. I remember Julie Fender used to come here, but she got a little baby boy now and her pictures are on Facebook. Cute little baby with a sin nature. <laughs> In Adam, judged already. Cute little baby, right? Needs the gospel. Needs the gospel. But we need CEF. We need ministry, gospel uh, ministry to these little ones. All right, judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. And so the word which he gave as the light of the world and they hated it, they rejected it, they fled from it. That's what will judge them on the last day. But he who, uh, for everyone who does evil, hates the light, does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And what a delight we have to be saved by the light, to be walking in light, to be saved from the good works which the Father prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, what a blessing. What a blessing. If you want to add to this, go ahead and add Revelation chapter 20 and you'll see the, the nature of that judgment. The fact that their names are not recorded in the Lamb's book of life is the only criteria Revelation 20 and verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book, singular, individual, the book, the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Understand in verse 12, I saw the dead, well, the setting for this is in verse 11, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Heavens and earth are destroyed by fire. There's no more physical universe. There's no more planet earth. The physical realm of creation has been consumed. And I saw the dead and the great, the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were open. Plural books. You see that? And another book was open. Singular. Which is the book of life. Now, why is that one different? Yeah, if there's if there's a hundred books or a thousand books or a million books in this collection, then adding one more, if you don't distinguish it, then it's just another one of the books. You don't have to bother illustrating that there's one more. But it's special, it's different, it's unique. It can't be counted with the plural number of the previous books because it's different. So the plural books are opened, and then another single book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. Okay? That has nothing to do with the single book, the Lamb's Book of Life. But the deeds in those books 
the record of their wickedness, the record of their uh, their evil, their human good production and their service of the adversary. All those deeds are recorded according to their deeds in the books, plural. But they're not going to the lake of fire for those books. Because of verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. That's the criteria. That's the word by which they will be judged. The word which the light of the world spoke, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. All right. So, first advent is not the occasion for judgment, but rejection of Christ's message will have an eschatological judgment based upon a protological judgment. I believe that was the divine decrees before the foundation of the world. Uh, Others who write about it... um, actually reference it back to the judgment on Adam. And I, and I don't dispute that. I think that judgment on Adam was consistent with the protological judgment in the divine decree. That when he, when dying thou shalt die, when he cursed Adam, and when he, Adam became a, a fallen man, that not only was Adam a fallen man, but all of humanity was, was joined in that judgment. Okay? And so most commentators that say, well, he's judged already, they take it back to the judgment on Adam. And they say that was the judgment on the human race. And I don't dispute that because that is true. I just think it's bigger than that. I think it's prior to Adam. That this judgment, this plan was already in place before Adam was even created to be tempted to fall, to, uh, to need reconciliation and so forth. All right. Finally, last thing today. The Father's commandment is eternal life. The Father's commandment is eternal life which makes faith acceptance and active obedience. We were just in this concept on Sunday, were we not? Romans chapter 1, we dealt with the obedience issue. Paul was hoping to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Well, he was burdened to get to Rome as quick as he could. The Father's commandment is eternal life. John 12:50, which makes faith acceptance an act of obedience. It's not just a mental assent to the truthfulness of a proposition. But it is actually the obedient acceptance of a commanded offer. John 12:50, and we'll relate it back, we'll relate it over to 1 John 3. A message that the Apostle John will deliver half a century later in 1 John. Why can't I find John 12:50? There it is. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. His commandment is eternal life. Let's relate this then to 1 John 3. I hope you have your notes from Sunday because I didn't repeat all those scripture references about the obedience of faith. 1 John 3, 23 and 24. <coughs> this is His commandment. First of all, this is why we have the confidence before God that we're not condemned, that uh, our hearts are assured before Him. We're His children. Our heart, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. 
There are going to be two primary commandments that are mentioned after this. Um, This is the commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's commandment number one. And you can't do commandment number two or any other commandment until you obey commandment number one. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. I don't know if you remember or not, but when we taught the will of God, this was point one in the will of God. What's, what's the will of God for your life? Well, first of all, you've got to be saved. You've got to be saved. Then you've got to be in fellowship. Then you've got to be in the Word. And then after that, you can start to uh, figure out what job you're supposed to take or what town you're supposed to move to or what woman you're supposed to marry or all these other secondary will of God considerations. Let's keep the first things first. Are you saved? <laughs> That's the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And now here's the next commandment. Love one another just as he commanded us. Remember, Jesus said a new command I give to you. Okay, why was it new? Well, because he was spending his ministry and life and giving the first commandment. Believe in me. Now a new commandment I give to you. Love one another. Just as uh, he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. So if you are saved, you believe in Christ, and you love one another, the body of Christ, then you have kept these two commandments, and um, this is how you are abiding in Him. We know uh, you abide in Him and He in Him. It's reciprocal. You're abiding in Christ. Christ is abiding in you. You're abiding in the Father. The Father is abiding in you. And when that's happening, do you think you have a confident prayer life? Absolutely. That's why we have this paragraph. For our heart does not condemn us. We have confidence before God. The one who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. We know by this he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. This is fascinating. You've got all three members of Trinity. We're abiding in the Father and the Son. We've got fellowship with the Father and the Son. But it's the Holy Spirit that testifies with our human spirit and makes it real for us. Amazing stuff. All right. Um, those are the last uh, scriptures I wanted to give you today. The... Obedience verses from Sunday. It was from Romans 1.5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. And I had given you a slide with some verses for gospel obedience. There it is. Obedience of faith refers to the faith response to God's free offer of eternal life as a matter of obedience to his desire. It's God's command. It's God's desire. And so here's some additional verses. John 3.36, Acts 6.7, Hebrews 5.9, and 1 Peter 1.2. All with reference to obedience to the gospel. Faith acceptance is obedience to the gospel. God's command is to believe in Jesus Christ. So the message Sunday dovetails with what we're dealing with here today. Romans 16:26, of course Romans 1:5, um, John 3:36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Believe versus disobey in that same verse. Acts 6, 7, obedience to the gospel. Uh, Hebrews 5, 9, and 1 Peter 1, 2. All right. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your truth. 
Thank you for all your grace provision. Thank you for your commandments. And Father, uh, thank you for the, the grace that made available for us what we did not earn, what we did not deserve, what we could not achieve. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to, uh, to be what we could not be and to do what we could not do. Father, I pray that not only would we have an understanding of these issues, I think we do, but that our understanding would promote a conviction and a sense of urgency and a compassion. Father, we might have a heart that, that your son has, that you have. We might look upon the field and see that they're white for the harvest, that we might share in your desire that none should perish, that we might be motivated to uh, embrace our ministry of reconciliation. Father, it's not just life of Christ, it's not just Romans, but it's Second Corinthians also, where you've been hitting us hard on this, Father. We've been entrusted with a ministry of reconciliation. We should be begging on behalf of, of uh, Christ to be reconciled to God. So, Father, in every major study you've sent to Austin Bible Church, you keep hammering home what this gospel message is about and, and how you expect us to, to have our feet shod and to go forth with this message. So I pray that we would be obedient to this command, even as we've been obedient to the command to be saved. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.